Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. When I was a kid, I loved reading and writing, and both were, when I look back on it, they kind of gave me the same opportunities that meditation does now. I was outside of my own mind and really kind of outside of my reality and just had a chance to kind of get out there into someone else's mind or into some kind of adventure, be it an actual journey or just a leap into a life that wasn't my life. And one of the series that I and many of my classmates loved, and in fact, we would fight over them when the bookmobile came to our school was Choose Your Own Adventure, which I was delighted to find out recently still exists. And my guest today has just published a new Choose Your Own Adventure that is like a, and to my way of thinking, a feminist hot dog instant classic for reasons that will become very obvious. So I want to welcome Catherine Factor, author extraordinaire, to the show. Catherine, welcome to Feminist Hot Dog. Thanks, Adrian. I'm happy to be here. Congrats on your second season and the merge with NOCO. It's really exciting. I love this podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So Catherine and I went to college together at Grinnell College many, many years ago. And we were just reflecting on the fact that it's been kind of fun to follow each other's career paths on social media. And it's really, really awesome to reconnect, especially over something as exciting as this book. Um, And before we dive into the book, which is delightful, I just want to talk about you for a minute. So you are a writer and a poet and an educator by trade and training. And you've done a lot of really interesting things over the course of your creative career. Can you just talk us through some of the highlights? Sure. I'm really interested in unburying women's voices. And so I've been able to do that in the classroom for quite some time, um, off and on, generally through teaching creative writing classes, uh, largely to young writers. So I've taught in a few of the boarding schools uh, for the arts that exist out there that nurture young Um, young writers and have held some residencies at those schools and also worked at some international artist residencies and have attended those as well. And one of the highlights of my teaching career was, has been publishing young writers through a press that I founded, Wild Idols Press. And we to date have put about 10 books Um, of youth who have written either poems or fiction um, in chapbooks, sometimes collaborating with visual artists and have a strong background in mythology and revisionist feminist myths. Those are my interests. And I I did want to ask you about that, actually, because... um, I mean, when we met as, like, teenagers, really, you... Already had a very, I, I remember that you had a very strong identity as a writer even then. And so, has is that has that been part of your identity ever since childhood? It has. I started writing stories and poems in fourth grade and winning contests um, for those. And by about sixth grade, had a. Um, a rather masculine um, female sixth grade teacher that smoked cigars and wore polyester turtlenecks and wasn't maybe the most well-liked or seemingly nurturing teacher, but she really introduced poetry to us and then supported my work and got it published when, um, by the time I was about in seventh grade. And then... I had been studying some of the other art forms, but really settled on 
being serious about creative writing and poetry in high school. So um, I'm really happy to be working with even um, younger writers and writing Choose Your Own Adventure because about um, that eight, that demographic is about the time that the idea of writing and creating worlds really picked up for me and then was supported through uh, both public and private education and um, my parents and also a lot of wonderful teachers and places like the public library and things that I think are so crucial um, to a child's development. So let's talk about Choose Your Own Adventure for a little bit here. Tell us the name of the book that you wrote. My book is Choose Your Own Adventure Spies, Mata Hari. And the Spy series is a brand new series for Choose. Um, There will be more. And concurrent with my release is another book um, by Keandra Jones. And it is James Armistead Lafayette, who was an African uh, slave that um, became a spy for the Revolutionary War. And so it's oh, really wow. exciting. Seri- yeah, they haven't dipped too much into like his. Uh, there are some historical chooser and adventures. And of course, all of them dabble with different aspects of history or geography. Um, so this has been an interesting task to both keep some very choose elements like magic and mysticism and parallel worlds or anything um, that can take place within these books, but also have to adhere to historical accuracy. And of course, delve, you know, deeply into the sort of the many worlds of Mata Hari. And just for folks who might not have read a Choose Your Own Adventure book, the structure is essentially you dive into the story as the reader and you are placed as the protagonist in the book. And then at critical junctures in the story, you're given options. And whichever option you choose will take you to another part of the book and then another part of the book and another part of the book. And so it's essentially, um, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to try to do the math, but, you know, sort of not an infinite number of combinations, but a lot of combinations um, of possible storylines and outcomes, which, um, I mean, so I, I, spent some time with Matahari this morning because I got a copy of the book. And like I said, I loved these books when I was a kid. And it was like I was 10 years old again. Like I had all the tricks. I knew how to like hold my place so I could go back if I needed to. Because like if I had a really good storyline going, but then I died, I was like, okay, I'm going to go back and like pick that one up. (laughs) And um, I was when I was a kid, I was pretty good about not skipping ahead because I had like a code about that. It was like, no, I have to do it for real. Like, I, you know, I don't want to cheat. Um, wow. But some, yeah, I was, I tried to be ethical, but then sometimes I would pick at the ending that I wanted and then try to like map it backward. You know, it was, it was quite a, like a little brain exercise in addition to being like a literary adventure too. So um, I really loved getting to experience that again with the Matahari story. It was so fun. That's that's great to hear. I'm th- I've been thinking a lot lately about how to choose your own adventure and reading those, you know, about eight and nine, ten years old, that um, they probably helped to introduce my love of reading poems um, because they're discreet. And in a book of poems, you have, you know, choices. You can read it front to back or you can jump around in the you know, various poems or find the ones that are speaking to you or flip through it. And I'm pretty sure I can thank Choose Your Own Adventure for turning me into a more creative reader um, and and loving reading and seeing myself as a protagonist in those books. I think it's pretty epic, especially for young girls at the time and still today and pushing against linear narratives which has been mm-hmm. a you know weaponized tool of patriarchy, um, and I find these this form to be extremely feminist in that it is cyclical and that it uses the second person you, so that you are included and involved in those choices rather than have them dictated to you by page sequencing. I never thought about the 
linear genre in that way before. That's that's very interesting. Um, I am so curious how you came to write this book. Did was this an idea that you pitched, or was Matahari kind of on the choose your own adventure list or what's tell us the backstory here. Yeah, she was uh, she was on their docket. And actually, it is uh, a poetry class um, that I took over a decade ago. There was a, a young undergraduate there, Melissa Bounty, uh, who was in the class with me. And we just really connected and we were editing the Green Mountain Review together at Johnson State College. And uh, we lost touch and had been Facebook, you know, friends. And she actually reached out about a year and a half ago. And it was their idea to sign me Matahari. I liked that. I liked having uh, both an assignment and also the structure of choose, you know, giving me a way to proceed, even though it might seem very chaotic that type of structure worked really well for me because I am a cyclical, you know, storyteller and like to go off and meander on tangents and bring things back around because I feel like it's a more natural way, um, you know, more naturally how we think. Um, so I was really grateful. I mean, right off the bat, there are lessons in the story about kind of sacrificing for sisterhood and, you know, cause she's faced with a dilemma about, you know, a friend who's in trouble. Um, there are lessons about cultural appropriation in there, which I, um, was, was really interested to see. There's observations about women and their contributions and there's just, there's magic all the way through the book. There's all these different really neat, some, some of which I'm sure are grounded in tradition and mythology, as you mentioned, but some of which definitely seem like they came from your imagination. So it it made me wonder how much were these all storylines that you invented or how much control did you have over the content? Uh, I'm not sure I had the control uh, or Mata Hari had the control um, because that's a, she's, that's a good point. <laughs> she's so powerful. I mean, she she exists very much like a myth and that everybody has, you know, thrown different variations of, you know, who she is um, into the public and also onto her and her body. And I spent a lot of time researching her. So and uh, there's these just various accounts, right, about whether or not she was a spy Um or how indulgent she was, and um, how um, you know much of a liar she was, and also a product of her time, which was the Bell Epoch, and um, you know right at the boundary there between um, glamour and luxury and entertainment, and um, the terrors of World War One. So often, the actual history would dictate. Um, what I was writing, but in terms of the embellishing the magic and mysticism that, that came, yeah, that came from my imagination. We do know that she studied um, the Hindu dances and that she lived in Indonesia. Um, so that's where the setting of the book starts in Bali and you're in a dance troupe. So that at that point, by the time she arrived in Indonesia, there had been several, you know, there had been trauma and I think several tragedies, one that included losing her mother at 15. So I think she was both, um, I think she both had PTSD and was trying to just survive and um, attracted to this lifestyle of the, you know, colonial oppressor in Indonesia. And that didn't work out very well for her. Paris was a place, you know, by 1905, 1900s, where a woman could be on her own. Mm. And so she managed to sort of claw her way there, and then try out these different, you know, opportunities for women of which there weren't many. She rode horseback in the circus, and then found her way to dancing and entertainment. She became a wild, wildly popular 
And very much, I think, the precursor to someone like Madonna or Lady Gaga. There were so many, um, so many dancers and imposters that came after her um, in that era. And then, of course, by the time the war was raging and France wasn't doing well, uh, she, you know, she was seen as a femme fatale or a spy and she was scapegoated. She was set up. Um, but not all the not all the history accounts for that. So whatever her true story was, it had a lot of subplots and winding narratives, I'm sure. And this like the um, choose your own adventure book does, too. And so there are about 20 different endings to this book, I think, or up around there. And some of them and I remember this from reading as a kid, some of them are quite harsh. And in this case, um, some of them are very spiritual and some of them are pretty existential. I mean, there's one when she um, finds herself becoming kind of addicted to telling lies and what happens to her um, when that happens. And I just thought that was such a fascinating ending. And, and when you think about like, just the, you know, humanity and the way that we all live our lives, even if we don't, you know, necessarily die, what are the choices that we make for ourselves that kind of cause these little deaths on a day-to-day -day basis? And I felt like some of the endings kind of reflected those types of choices or those kinds of circumstances that we might find ourselves in without, you know, it, you don't necessarily have to be like thrown off a cliff or engulfed in a blaze. Like, you can find yourself doing the same thing over and over again and sort of inside like dying of boredom. And I just thought that was so cool. It was that like a, was that an intentional choice that you made? I love how you picked up on that idea about, you know, our sort of our mini fates um, and our mini free will. She did end up um, back in the Netherlands after she had been famous and used to a certain lifestyle. And so I wanted to sort of capture that because she was uh, really bored to be back there and desperate to get back um, to more excitement. And that did lead to some um, difficult situations for her and um, sort of getting caught up in a web of lies that led to her ending. Um, but also, you know, she was set up. Um, but also she was in her 40s and beginning to be more desperate um, because of her career and ageism and the fact that her, that entertainment was, you know, becoming out of style. So I didn't intend that. It just <laughs> occurred to me as I would be writing, like sometimes the end would just become um, very prominent and didn't lead to any more ideas in terms of like a storyline. So generally they would let me know um, in the same way that writing a poem can get to like a, either an epiphonic moment or maybe a volta, which is like a surprise or a turn of thought. And sometimes you, you know, you just arrive there naturally and you know, the, you know, it's the language lets you know, it's, it's over. Of course you had to die of boredom. I just thought that was fun. <laughs> Such a fun way to die. I mean, like, <laughs> well, um, is there anything else that you would like to share about your, I know we might, we're going to probably talk more about Matahari a little bit later, but, um, about the book or about you and your career. Um, my website is up at kfactorwrites, K-F-A-C-T-O-R-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. I do a lot of book coaching and helping others um, publish and uh, create their manuscripts. Um, so that that's feels like a good balance between offering something to the world and helping people with their dreams and also getting to be around words. Very cool. So aspiring writers... Give Catherine a shout on her website. All right.
right. Well, we are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing lately. And I know you have a bunch of cool stuff to share. So why don't you go first and I'll just... I'll just jump in. I loved thinking about this this week. Um, and I did. I did. I have so, so many ideas. Um, but what I really want to talk about what's been making my feminist heart sing is the rise in children's literature that empowers and showcases and highlights women in history um, and girls also that have made a difference in the world. Um, so something I didn't quite understand was that um, Chelsea Clinton is a children's book writer and her book. Oh, she I didn't persists- know that. Yeah. Yep. Um, she has a new book out this week. She persisted around the world, um, which is illustrated by Alexandra Boyger and it's um, shows 13 women who changed history. And of course this follows a trend of um, the rebel girls publications Uh, There are um, rad girls who change the world. And then there's also Michelle McCann, uh, Girls Who Rock the World. And she has as well a Boys Who Rock the World books. Um, And then, of course, I'm always interested in how um, women in history are revised or unearthed um, so that they especially if they're misrepresented um, in the past and how those stories can be retold for a younger audience. And here I'm thinking about Emily Whitman, who just won the Oregon Book Award for her book, The Turning, which is about a boy who's a Selkie. Um, But she has a book about Persephone, a retelling of the Persephone story. And I've always, um, you know, really cared about Persephone and what, her point of view is in that myth. Um, And there's also a book called the deep, the deeper song by Patty Fitch, who's a children's book writer. And that explores the idea that perhaps a woman was involved in writing biblical text. Um, Mm. And I just love that. Um, So these, this is a really exciting time, I think, to be, um, you know, to be parenting young readers and to be nannying young readers and to be friends with young readers and also learning um, about these women in history. To that note, there's a there's a new YouTube channel, a young woman, lady in the library, and she's been vlogging about misrepresented women there's i discovered her because she has a mata hari episode that's well researched and she's also doing like um yeah she's also doing like salome and um delilah and you know those that are like checking that out yeah she's wonderful so what made my feminist heart sing this week we had a very It was a tough week here because we had a really horrible abortion bill um, favorably voted on in the Alabama legislature. And so that's it's been like a really hard week for people here. And I needed some good news. And so I was very excited to hear about this new project, um, which is actually I thought the perfect project to highlight in honor of our literary themed conversation and is called 1977 books um, that is slated to open here in Montgomery. They just launched their fundraising campaign on independent bookstore day last week. And uh, I will also put the fundraising link in the show notes if anyone, any listeners care to support this awesome project. So 1977 books is a libreria library and laboratory community space. Um, that, like I said, is going to open, open here in Montgomery. And the goal of this space is to serve people of color, working class people, queer and trans people, and all people committed to getting free. So getting free is a theme that you'll see a lot in the, um, in the, literature and the write-ups about 1977 books. And it's a uh, actually an outgrowth 
of a monthly gathering that happens here locally called How We Get Free, which is a book club for uh, people of color, queer and trans folks, and all people committed to getting free. And uh, what's kind of cool about it is that it's grounded in the historical legacy of resistance and resilience here in Montgomery and in the South. So it's very, um, even though not everything that they read is is necessarily grounded here, it's that very much recognizes place um and proximity as as important um to kind of the intersections of the identities of the people who are participating in this book club so 1977 books is um operating from a break-free economic model too so it's also resist you know a resisting capitalism to a degree all profits will be invested right back into the space and it's going to be right in downtown montgomery which i'm also very happy about because we just you know last year opened the first lgbtq community center here and which is awesome yes Um, and now this space is going to be right in the heart of downtown in a building that was just re furbished and reopened to much fanfare so it gets a lot of attention and a lot of traffic so it's going to be very visible it's going to be a really visible space in a place where not only people who live here but people who visit here will see so um i think that's really important so like i said i'm very excited to support this work they're hoping to raise the first ten thousand dollars to be able to open the doors uh just now in the first 30 days of fundraising. So check out the link and uh, for their crowdfunding campaign and yeah, go 1977 books. Yeah. Let's get free. (laughs) Let's get free. So tell me what else made your feminist heart sing? Um, (laughs) finding out about, um, Ava DuVernay's, um, docu-series, I think recreating, um, the Central Park Five, and that 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 comes out the end of the month, and through that, finding out that she's directing a Prince biopic, and I, when I was teaching college, I just loved um, using Selma in the classroom uh, towards the end of, you know, essentially what's a, a rhetoric and comp class, and uh, pairing it with Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, so I just, I really love her and her work. I look forward to seeing that. She has roots here. She shows up in town every once in a while. I think, um, at least one of her siblings lives here. It is um, also not that far from you is in, I think in, in Atlanta, this, um, the trap King, he is an amazing, um, cat advocate and a very, to me, masculine male who, is great to follow on Instagram at the trap King. And I just love, you know, this movement of men that are cat lovers and cat protectors. And to me are breaking down those, you know, I think a lot of times pets um, and pet importance is often genderized. Um, And I just, that, that seeing his posts and uh, the, the TNR movement of trap neuter return um, being, you know, uh, involving men um, with, you know, the feline, which is typically seen as just such a um, such a feminine and, you know, often overlooked or, um, yeah, overlooked animal. Check him out. And is that is that his Internet identity exclusively or is that is that kind of his is that does he have a business traphumane.org uh is the website and yeah that's i assuming nonprofit. i love it okay so i'm gonna put you on the spot here a little bit because this season i we i've been doing this dear feminist hot dog segment and responding to listener questions and this season, I decided I was going to switch it up a little bit and ask questions that I want to know the answer to of my guests, um, usually based on something that they have background or knowledge or expertise in. Dear Feminist Hot Dog Catherine, 
When we're young, we don't have a lot of choices, but as we age and we have more freedom, how can we remember to choose our own adventure? As we get older, many of us, myself included, lose the parts of ourselves that are unabashedly creative. We choose pathways that are increasingly more practical and less adventurous, and some of that willingness to let our minds go just falls away over time. So how can we as adults stay connected or reconnect with the creative parts of us that are willing to try new things or dive into the unknown without the fear of what other people will think or without worrying that we're wasting our time on something that isn't quote unquote productive. Um, and I am asking you this question because something I've always admired about you is that you, you really were able to hang on to this piece of yourself. And that's been, like I said earlier, part of your identity all the way through your life. So what advice do you have for the rest of us about how to connect or reconnect with those parts of ourselves that many of us left behind in childhood? That's a great question. Um, and essentially the core of creativity coaching and in book coaching, um, which is, you know, how, what are the ways in which we can keep our self-expression alive and safe and getting it into places in the world, like onto the page or into our relationships. Uh, and so it, one's inner life must be cultivated. Uh, and the ways to cultivate an inner life are to learn and gain and empower ourselves and our intuition. Um, and that, that can take the form of a creative practice or slowing down, um, paying attention in the world, getting out in nature, the things that, that poetry I think can teach us and appreciating, um, you know, appreciating uh, silence and ways of extracting ourselves from the noise that is late capitalism. So we have to nurture, um, you know, you have to purposefully nurture that which isn't, you know, elevated in our society. And I, another way to do that is to participate in spaces, activist spaces, um, so that we can step outside of ourselves and outside of um, what, you know, the norms are deeming to be the most important. So I think that's a great um, and quick way to um, step outside of oneself and gain uh, empathy and take action, just something um, that that joins in the history of, yeah, of getting free um, and how we liberate ourselves from essentially oppression. And another way to cultivate your inner life is to just go to a show, just go see a musical, go see a speaker, stand up comedy, something where these cultural contributors are putting themselves out there and are engaged in these acts of bravery and these acts of, um, you know, of put, of just expressing themselves, um, because that will form a little spark inside. Um, if you, you know, you'll feel inspired. Uh, the most beautiful thing I think about seeing other writers read is that I always, you know, if they're good and if they're in my sight line creatively, then I always feel like permission to continue what I'm doing or, um, you know, work on a project. And it's very, it's difficult to do. It's, it's difficult to pursue something that doesn't have an, an exact economy attached to it. Um, but I can't encourage it enough. I do think that getting immersed in what other people in your genre are doing can be really, really beneficial if you can sort of separate from the urge to compare, which I think um, many of us have in us, um, but it's so worth overcoming. And it's that's a challenge. I mean, turning off the self-editor or, you know, facing the internal antagonist, the bully that wants to 
have the louder voice in your life or in your creative pursuits. I mean, that is probably a lifetime challenge. Um, but I was in my writing class with, um, Emily Wils, uh, Whitman, and she had us, well, pass this along, turn your inner bully into a character, into an antagonist. Mm. And what is that? Yes. What is that, you know, bully like look like and dress like and sound like, and what's, you know, what are they eating and how do they smell? Um, and bring it out of the dark, um, just as like a little, you know, in your morning pages or when it seems to be out of control. Well, I feel like I just got a little coaching session right now. Thank you so much. I love that <laughs> yeah. answer. I'm, I'm going to be re-listening to that one again. So are you ready to talk about the Hot Dog Hall of Fame? I am. So my choice for the Hot Dog Hall of Fame this week is a little bit of a cheat because she's not a lesser known person. She's actually, in fact, very well known. But I had to pick her because we were talking about children's literature. And that is the person I've picked is Jacqueline Woodson. And so um, listeners, if you haven't heard of her, you may be familiar with the uh, book Brown Girl Dreaming, which is an uh, autobiographical novel about Woodson's childhood. And that won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature in 2014. So, and she has writ written several dozen books, mostly for children and adolescents, although she has written for adults as well. Um, so a little bit about her life before I kind of jump into what I love so much about her. She was born in Ohio in 1963 and then moved to South Carolina where she spent her early childhood. And she speaks very fondly of living in the South, despite the racism and segregation that she witnessed and experienced there. Um, she had a lot of family ties there and, and I think felt connected to South Carolina in a lot of ways. Um, her family moved to New York City when she was seven. And um, she's lived other places, but she currently does live in New York in Brooklyn with her partner and uh, two kids. And she talks a lot in interviews about... So, Catherine, just as you had a, a teacher that really... Um, was central to your journey. She talks a lot about how teachers were important to her in terms of helping her see herself as talented and worthy. And another thing that I love and I think is really, it's really worth looking at her website because you can tell that she designed it with young visitors in mind. Um, and she talks about how she told a lot of lies as a child and that she loved seeing people's eyes get really wide when she would tell them these stories that she had made up. And then at some point through, I think, a combination of getting into trouble and teachers um, kind of recognizing her talent, she realized that she could get much more positive attention for telling lies if she wrote them down as stories than if she actually told them to her <laughs> friends and family, which <laughs> I think is delightful. And I'm so happy that she included that on her website. So she's obviously a name that people think of when they talk about diversity and inclusion in children's literature and adolescent um, fiction. And she's very vocal about that as well, partly because she's you know, very aware that representation matters. And she didn't see a lot of that in the books that she read as a child. Um, but also partly because she cares about the legacies um, of people whose lives have not been preserved in literature and that she wants to preserve. So um, there's a quote, a couple, I have a couple quotes of hers that I wanted to read. She says, Black women have been everywhere, building the railroads, cleaning the kitchens, starting revolutions, writing poetry, leading voter registration drives and leading slaves to freedom. We've been there and done that. I want the people who have come before me to be part of the stories I'm telling, because if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be telling these stories. Just in terms of kind of her gift as a writer and how she's so, why I think young readers connect with her so much, there's... Another quote I came across from an NPR interview that references um, kind of what I was getting at actually in my Dear Feminist Hot Dog question about, um, you know, how you sort of keep that piece of yourself from when you were young 
even as an adult. And so she says, I'm writing about adolescence for adolescents. And I think the main difference is when you're writing to a particular age group, especially a younger age group, the writing can't be as implicit. You're more in the moment. They don't have the adult experience from which to look back. So you are in the moment of being an adolescent and the immediacy and the urgency is very much on the page because that's what it feels like to be an adolescent. Everything is so important, so big, so traumatic, and all of that has to be in place for them. And I, you know, that's certainly something that obviously I would not have been aware of as an adolescent because you have, you know, that's an adult thought. Um, but I just love the way that she articulated that. She's won dozens of major awards, including the Newbery Honor Award, Coretta Scott King Award, um, the Margaret A. Edwards Award for Lifetime Achievement, and as I mentioned, the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Um, I had the chance to see her last year. Um, she moderated a panel that I attended, um, and I think she was stepping in as the moderator, actually. Um, and the panel included Cory Booker, Brittany Packnett, and Common. And she was so, I, yeah, it was an amazing panel and she was so starstruck. Um, and you know, then it's like, Oh, like Jacqueline Woodson is starstruck. Like she's also obviously a star. Um, but she was so endearing. Like she would ask a question and then she'd kind of forget that she was moderating for a while because she was so like excited about the answers and the conversation. (laughs) And it was like the most authentic, charming, thing to see because and it just made me love her even more as a person because she she truly did allow herself to get caught up in that moment in a way that I think um I don't know less authentic people would not have allowed themselves to do so I that I I already loved her and that just made me love her even more so um you know in addition to the fact that she is a highly celebrated and accomplished queer black woman who has done amazing intersectional work. She's someone whose ability to identify with young readers, I think really comes from the fact that she has allowed herself to stay connected with that, um, that spark. And I find that really moving and inspiring. So Jacqueline Woodson, thank you for everything you've done for young readers, especially girls and welcome to the hot dog hall of fame. And I just want to say that even though she is well known, uh, it's so important to lift up, the voices of children's writers, you know, as a genre, I think, because in some perspectives, you know, there's still pushback, like, is it literary enough? Oh, yeah, I can definitely see that being sort of a bias that you would have to learn to kind of or unlearn, basically. All right, well, I want to hear more about Matahari. And was she a feminist? Well, I've been thinking about this, because, you know, she wasn't a feminist um, in the same way that, let's say, Josephine Baker, who was also a dancer and a spy, um, was a true humanitarian um, in the era of like World War II, or even during Mata's era, you know, um, these this woman, Aletta Jacobs, who was the first female um, Dutch physician and led the suffragette movement um, in Europe, along with a woman named Emmeline Parkhurst, who was a London suffragette. And she, these women were, you know, this was the first wave era. And um, Mata made no social statement, even though she had so much clout at one point in her career and was around so many important people. Um, she didn't use that platform at all to advance like the cause of women and what we might typically think of as feminism. And, um, and in a lot of ways, she was like, also didn't have the privilege to do that, because she had lost her family wealth as a child, and had, you know, was in survivor mode, but she did at different points make a lot of money, a lot of money for a woman um, working on her own, which is pretty incredible. Um, but she, that money was, you know, came from male sources, um, of course, at that time. And so in that way, she was dependent on men. And But she was always resourceful and often reinventing herself and often would look down on men, um, even though she was always hobnobbing and loved military men and these 
um, people that had importance. Um, but she was very convinced of her, her own talent, um, and her own power. And she knew how to use that. Um, and for the most part, use it to her advantage, though it did get herself, you know, into trouble. And she, she died in a completely tragic way by um, execution after she was tried for espionage. And the reports from her death day on 19, October 15th, 1917, were that she blew a kiss um, to some men in the crowd uh, and refused to be blindfolded. And so was, you know, I think strong and brave um, and pushing back um, even on the day of her death. And, um, you know, we've seen court documents now that have been released that really show there wasn't enough evidence um, to, to execute her, you know, to evidence of her guilt. But I call it, you know, death by misogyny. Um, yeah. So it's interesting wow. question. And is it true yeah. that she danced on the on the day of her death? Um, I apparently the night before the women that were taking, you know, I wouldn't say they were taking care of her, but they were nuns um, in the prison um, where she probably suffered tuberculosis and had been quite sick and had been in there a long time um, in a you know, in a torturous way so that she would admit to like wrongdoing. But these nuns like knew her well enough and asked her to dance to try to like calm her. And I think they did give her brandy or something like that on her, you know, in these final hours. Well, I don't. One of the things that we've talked about on the show a lot is. Do you have to be explicitly articulating a quote unquote feminist agenda or narrative to be a feminist or is living in an unapologetic, unconventional way. Is that also feminist? So I think by that definition, absolutely. And, you know, I also think it's uplifting worth worth lifting up the people who fought for, the rights of women or oppressed people or who, you know, articulated their ideas about oppression and suffered for that. But I think that she, um, it was like, she was showing, not telling kind of in a way she was like living her feminism instead of broadcasting it. That's right. She definitely, you know, lived a life that, um, of in unconventionality and a feistiness that I think many women aspire to and would have aspired to then. Um, and she was able to reinvent herself and figure out ways of surviving and also, you know, like performed for the rich and use that to like have her freedom. Um, and she's such a red herring for the, you know, I think I would call her like a body feminist, um, and that she was, you know, unabashed and expressing herself and her body. And she's sort of a red herring to me of how um, women's women, women's bodies are treated and that they are objectified and, you know, put on pedestals at times. And then also, you know, then that same um, glorification or objectification is used against them. And actually, nobody claimed her body um, after her death. And even like, well, it went to a medical school um, for anatomical, you know, interests. And um, that's so interesting. It is because um, her again, her legend, you know, and her power continues and that this this place um, discovered that her head had gone missing Somebody had stolen oh her God. head. Yeah. No one was sure the last time her head had been accounted for. It could, it was like, wow. this, again, yeah, total, just, just, you know, missile sort of of her, um, you know, of, I guess 
the thing that had been so adorned, you know, had been adorned in jewels and headdresses. And just I made sure that um, that there was a hint of that part of her story in one of the endings. And I also made sure for many reasons um, that her actual death is not in the book. Um, it's so horrible. And also, um, I, you know, was the person that set her up does meet um, that she does in my book have a confrontation with him. And that was probably the most fun to write, to be able to like give her her childhood back, um, but also have her uh, confront her oppressor and um, be more powerful than than him. I'm sure that wherever she is, she really appreciates that you did that for her. Well, yeah. I think she totally belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yes, 100%. Welcome, Matahari, to your rightful place among your sisters in the Hall of Fame. We applaud you. Mata, who was never afraid of her buns, right? She just... That's right. She loved those buns. Well, Catherine, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for talking with us about your life, your book, um, helping to be my creativity coach for a few minutes here. This has been very, very fun. Thanks, Adrian. And I'm, I just feel so blessed to like also join the other amazing guests that you've had on the show. And I'm learning so much from the work that you all are doing. Well, good. Thank you for listening. And thank you all out there for spending another episode of Feminist Hot Dog with us. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our audio engineering is by Square Lightning Design. And we will see you in two weeks for another new episode on NoCo FM. Until then, love yourself and love your buns. Love your buns. This has been a production of NOCO FM.